Hello and welcome to History West Midlands, our regular in-depth examination of various aspects of the black country. Uh, nail making is one of our oldest industries and had gone on in and around the area for hundreds of years prior to the Industrial Revolution of the 18th and 19th centuries. It was originally little more than a cottage industry, but it went on to become a mainstay of our trade before it fell into decline at the close of the 1800s. As with so many other aspects of the black country life, the working conditions were terrible and poor treatment meted out by uh, employers resulted in numerous instances of very serious social unrest. Today we're asking how nail making came to the black country and the surrounding area and examining what brought about the transformation, what was its bearing on the area in social terms and what were the implications of its eventual decline. Uh, to help us navigate through these questions, our compass is the noted local author Francis Brett Young, who died in 1954. This uh, son of Hal and a fervent admirer of William Shenston, will be himself subject to a separate review on another day. But he aids us in this context by identifying set some of his novels against the backdrop of the nailmakers, and his evocative fictional prose helps in our picturing of the grim realities of the trade. Joining me here at the Black Country Living Museum is Guy Shergren, who is currently researching the Westmoreland's cut-nail trade of the 19th century. Metal is in Guy's blood. His Swedish surname derives from his great-grandfather, who set up the Sandvik Steel Company in Halzoen, whilst his maternal great-great-grandfather established a cut-nail business in Birmingham in the late 1840s and was awarded a medal at the Great Exhibition of 1851. Dr Trevor Raybould is an author and lecturer whose doctorate examined the Dudley Estate manuscripts. He's both a founder member and a past president of the Black Country Society and has a special interest in the social history of the area. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Guy Shogren, how important to the region was nail making? Well, I think there's a short answer, very important, but the slightly longer answer perhaps begins with a quote from a book called The Rise of the Midland Industries by WHB Court it would be impossible to understand the industrial evolution of the district without assigning to this apparently trivial and uninteresting occupation a high place as one of the factors making for change towards industrialization from the 16th century to 1830. When Court was talking about the district, he was referring to South Staffordshire, North East Worcestershire and Birmingham. Although nail-making was beginning to feature as an occupation in the Midlands from the 16th century, nail-making was really largely a village blacksmith occupation. In Birmingham, up to about the end of the 16th century, there was a nail-making area around Derrit End and Digbeth, and there was also nail-making going on in the black country as well, Wensbury, for example, but this was not a particularly major occupation at that time. But it was two events in particular which changed all this. The first was what has been referred to as the Great Rebuilding from 1570 to 1640. During that period, the population of Britain doubled, and so new housing was required. And along with that, there were new styles of building, new styles of architecture. And also, there was a cultural change. People were after a greater sense of privacy. And as such, buildings had a greater number of individual rooms. They had individual floors. There was a first and a second floor. There were staircases joining the two. There were glazed windows. And all these things demanded nails as fixings. It was estimated that 280 nails were required per square metre of flooring. 
So there was demand on the home front. The other event was colonial expansion, particularly into the American colonies and into the West Indies. In America, wood was the construction material of choice, and in the West Indies, sugar plantations required buildings, houses, mills, carts, ships, boats, and barrels. Nails required for each of these individual items. The result was in the West Midlands, in South Staffordshire and northeast Worcestershire and Birmingham, the creation of a centre of nail making. For example, by the middle of the 17th century, in West Bromwich, in the parish records, 212 baptisms were recorded, and of those, 122 fathers were nailers. The nail trade had a voracious appetite for iron, and as it grew, stimulated the expansion of the regional iron industry. The nail masters, the iron masters, developed a pool of capital and of know-how, and uh, this was of use to other metal trades. The nail masters, like Spooner and Lloyd, went on to become bankers, and the whole infrastructure that developed around the nail trade, like Transport and the river transport, Butley, for example, became sort of a port for the Midland nail trade. Road carriers developed, and of course, later on, canals. Trevor Raybold, uh, the expression hard as nails, we think, could equally have been applied to the nail makers themselves. And Francis Brett Young describes the nail maker and his family being, and I quote, more like machines than human beings. The moment they ceased working, they ate what they could and flung themselves down on the bed they shared where they slept. When they woke, they ate greedily again and worked till their eyes or their muscles failed them. Hunger was taken as a matter of course. That's powerful purple stuff. Let me ask you your personal interpretation of what you think life was like for workers and their families in the nail trade. Well, they're operating in a system where there was no business plan at all. And it's the result of organic growth of a home-based source of income, as Guy has explained. And it provided cheap labour at the bottom end of the social hierarchy by people driven to it as a means of subsistence in a laissez-faire society increasingly as the 19th century wore on. Francis Brett Young was probably more accurate in his writings than Elio Burritt in 1868, Walks in the Black Country. A rather more romantic view, he talks about the universal click of the hammers of the nailers in the picturesque valley of the star at Hales Owen. He's also a trifle more florid than Francis Brett Young indeed, in his descriptive indeed. prose, is he not? Indeed. Picking up your point, essentially, it was the exploitation of sweated labour where wife and children could supplement the inadequate wages of their husbands. Yes, it's a cottage industry, but it was anything but idyllic. On the whole, the husbands tended to be minors, but not exclusively. It seems no matter what occupation you had in those days, it was a hard life. A hard life indeed, yes. Guy Shogren, just how big and important was nail-making in the black country? Well, I think one way of looking at it is, is the number of people that were actually employed in the trade. In 1770, 
there were about 10,000, which seems a fairly large number of people. But by 1800, this had risen to 35,000. And 30 years later, it was around 50,000 people, men, women and children, operating in that black country handmade nail trade. Now, nail making goes back thousands of years. Why did it end up with the black country? How did it come in? Well, it didn't just land up in the black country. There were other regions that produced nails. There was Belper in Derbyshire, around Wigan in Lancashire, across the Pennines in Sheffield, Rotherham. But South Staffordshire and northeast Worcestershire had everything going for it. It had coal breaking out through the surface of the soil. It had iron either from Shropshire or imported from Russia and Sweden and brought up the River Severn from Bristol. It had fast-running streams which were needed for running the slitting mills which produced the nail rod. It had an underemployed labour force of uh, pastoral farmers. It had the River Severn and later the canal system to not only bring up the raw materials but also to carry the finished nails away. And it had merchants already existing in the major towns to organise the trade. Trevor Raybould, uh, how was the nail industry actually organised? What was its hierarchy? I think hierarchy is a better word than uh, organisation. The nail masters would buy rods from the slitting mills. The bulk of the production in the nail trade was organised by the middlemen who were known locally as foggers and they would make bundles of nails available to the nailers. Bundles were known as bundles of spikes. In weight, they were 60 pounds weight, and the nailers would come along to the warehouse and obtain the nail bundles, which were weighed out to them. And it was a well-known fact, but nothing could be done about it, that in weighing out the nails, the nail foggers used what I might describe as a pound light weight. And then at the other end of the week, checking in was on a Saturday, they would use a pound heavy to receive back the nails so that each end of the transaction, the nailers were cheated by the middleman. And they didn't act in isolation, the foggers. They got organised quite early on and they would often meet on a weekly basis in order to negotiate with the nail masters as to the price they were prepared to pay for the rods. And more importantly to the fogger, they would meet weekly to determine how they could depress the wages of the nailers. It was a closed market, a rigged market. We seem to have touched on this sort of practice uh, in our previous discussions on everything from the coal industry to to limestone and iron ore. Uh, This seems to have been the de rigueur practice of the day, was it not? Uh, The dishonesty, but the efficiency, if you're the fogger, you know, you're squeezing out every penny and halfpenny you can, and nobody's going to stop you. Frequently, the foggers would not let the nailers know what the demand for nails was for them until very late in the week. It meant that the nailers often worked not only all day long on Friday, but all night as well, to meet the demands of the foggers on Saturday morning when they carried or trolleyed their wheelbarrowed their nails back to the foggers' warehouse for checking in and pay. So that, in effect, the nailers themselves, rather like the miners, didn't work on uh, Monday, quite often not on Tuesday. They begin work on Wednesday 
and then work through to Saturday morning, when, as Ballenden puts it, they then revel for the rest of the weekend. But it means that they work like dogs in the last two days of the working week, particularly Thursday night and Friday all day and Friday night. Guy, can you enlarge on the essential difference for me, please, between cut nail and handmade nail production? Right. Handmade nails go back, oh, 3,000 years, and the actual method of production really hasn't changed during that period. Simple tools in a simple nail shop. The heated metal rod was taken from the furnace and then hammered into shape on an anvil. It was then cut to length and simply put in a heading tool and bashed on the head, and that formed the nail. The cut nail is very different. The origin of the cut nail was not in the West Midlands, not in Britain. In fact, it was in America. The population of American colonies between 1780 and 1810 trebled. Demand for housing, demand for industry, ships, led to a great increase in the requirement for nails. Everything was made of wood and therefore everything needed to be fixed with nails. The race was on to find a way of producing nails, a far greater output of nails than was possible with the existing workforce. And so the government provided initiatives to produce a nail machine. The idea with the cut nail machine is you have a strip of metal which is just a little bit wider than the nail that you're going to make. It is fed into a machine, a blade comes down and shears the required amount of metal from this. The nail drops down and is gripped and a header slams into the end of the nail and forms the head. The nail then drops out into a bin below. And it was estimated that one machine in a week could produce 3,600,000 nails. That presumably helps sound the death knell for the hand-cut trade, but uh, were there regional differences in how the two developed? If there were, what were they? There were. By 1800, there were about 40,000 handmade nailers in what we now know as the black country. In 1800, there was no cut nail machine. It was only in 1810 when an American from Boston, a merchant there, came across to settle in London, and he bought with him a patent from an American inventor called Jacob Perkins. And because... Dyer knew that the black country and the Midlands was the main nail-making part of Britain. He came up here to try and sell the machine. He bought a model, he flogged it round the black country, no one was interested. Anyway, undeterred, he bought a disused brewery called the Britannia Brewery in Aston, just off Newtown Row. And uh, he set up this nail-making factory there bought a 32-horsepower steam engine, and he had 60, or the plan was anyway, he had 60 nail-making machines connected to the steam engine. To start with, there were real technological problems with the machine. It kept jamming, and it took some time for this to improve. And so by 1830, there was only one cut nail factory in Birmingham. Meanwhile, in the black country, the nail trade continued to develop, whereas the cut nail trade sort of struggled on. 
Let me go back to our guiding light for this session, which is Francis Brett Young. He um, was a novelist, of course, but we use his novels that are, we believe, are pretty factually accurate in their prose to take some flavour, some sounding of what life is actually like. And uh, I'll give another quote from him, where he ventures beyond the black country to uh, Bromsboro, which surely must be Bromsgrove, where he says, quote, there were nail shops and the familiar tinkle of hammers. Now, um, we do know in reality that the heavy industry proliferated in the black country, now migrated to Birmingham and beyond. Are we saying that's largely due to the technical problems they had with creating the machines to replace the handmade nails? That's one of them, yes, certainly. The cut nail trade was a major factor in the decline of the black country nail trade. Well, did they manage to coexist for any length of time? They did, yes, they did, until, say, the end of the 19th century, because although the number of handmade nailers declined, it declined steadily, but it didn't just stop when the cut nail industry started. There was a gradual decline in the handmade nail trade. At the same time, the cut nail trade had risen In 1852, there was an article in the Times which read, Cut nails have taken almost complete possession of the market. The immense powers of production now existing in Birmingham, for cut nail manufacturers are springing up in every direction, the excellent quality of the articles produced and the low price at which they are sold have combinedly annihilated, except some particular descriptions, the wrought nail trade. Well, that's a slight exaggeration because the handmade nail trade was still functioning, particularly with certain types of nail, like the horseshoe nail, which is Dudley's pride and joy. You couldn't make those with machines. And the Brazil mule nail, you couldn't make those in machines. Trevor Raybould, that's quite a catastrophic drop in numbers by any yardstick over half a century. Uh, What were the social implications of uh, that sort of loss of skill? Yes, I think the history depicted by... Guy helps to explain why, as the century wore on, the living conditions, suffering, if you like, of the nailers and their families simply increased until they start to wither away by the beginning of the 20th century. It might be helpful if I quote from a government uh, factory inspector, Dr Ballenden, who wrote a report to the inspector of factories in London in 1869 he made some comments about the nailing industry, particularly in Sedgley and Dudley. As to their morals, he writes, 30 years' experience amongst the nailers tells me that they are the most immoral people in England. Here men and women cohabit and propagate in unions connected by no marriage service. The poor law seems partly to blame, for the unmarried woman gets one and sixpence a week for each child, and two shillings for herself, a not inconsiderable boon for the unmarried mother and father. This is an insuperable bar to matrimony and a premium for adultery, he thunders, as it were. He goes on to assert that pregnancy is a curse, by implication, if the mother can't work for a period of time, that's loss of revenue. And child mortality is, his words, negative murder. This is very common, he said, where a child is not let live. Neglected, I presume, he means. And then he adds, interestingly, excepting the sins of lust and drunkenness, the nailers are not vicious. As for their health, he makes an interesting observation. 
It's very good as a class, he asserts, because there are no diseases specific to their trade. It's not too arduous, and they can continue into an old age. I think that's rather a quixotic view. They may be better off than the miners in not getting any diseases that coal miners can get, but his uh, comments really miss the point, I would suggest. As for living conditions, their houses are the worst in whatever neighbourhood they settle. Paper and pilfer nail bags stop the holes in broken windows. Three or four naked children sprawl on the earth floor. Ling is used for a fire in this land of coal. In the unventilated bedroom, a truss of straw covered by nail bags is the bed. I gather from that that the whole family unit was uh, quite clearly involved in the trade. Very much so. And we've already established that conditions were pretty grim. Uh, what was done by anybody to improve their lot? Well, I suppose the general answer to that is very little and too late. Factory regulation is, I won't say late coming to England, but in the 1830s when it begins, it's the textile factories. In the 40s and 50s, it's the larger industries and the mines. And the first workshop and factory act, I think, is 1878. Now, the sweated trades, which nailers and chain makers were a numerous part, lie outside this entirely. And it's towards the end of the century that the violence, which increases as the onset of the machine-made nail, gives further reasons for the nail foggers to screw down the workers. And if you want to eat, then you work at my level of wages. And they could earn perhaps 10 shillings a week a man in the 1860s or thereabouts for a bundle of nails. By the end of the period in the 1880s, 90s, it was sometimes as low as eightpence. Now, I'm back to Francis Brett Young again here when he describes nail-making as, a, I quote, a grim and sweating industry, a life of unceasing labour amid conditions of brutal savagery and bitter privation. And we've already heard about the uh, extent of the working conditions causing instances of civil unrest, and some of these were very serious. Can you set the scene for some of the more serious ones, and how were they dealt with by the authorities? What were the consequences of these? Did they serve any purpose? Did anything come off them? Unrest was occurring whenever there was a drop in the price of iron. That's the barometer of most of the black country economy. If the price of iron drops, then everything slows down in the black country, and that meant also demand for nails. And, of course, the nail makers would suffer. So there's unrest in the late 30s. There's unrest in 1842-3, commensurate with the miners' unrest, when they struck for nearly six months in this area, but the unrest tends to become more regular, persistent, and take the part of attacks on property and increasingly confrontation with the cavalry who are brought in to dispel rioting nailers and chainmakers and miners who tended to be working together in these particularly bad periods. And in one particular year, I think it's in the late 1880s, there were major riots in Oldbury and Tipton and in Old Hill, culminating in what came to be known as the Battle of Old Hill Cross, when the cavalry were uh, made uncomfortable by strewing the caltrops which were made in the black country, any road ups, the tis was, uh, where the spikes stick up, and that maimed 
the hooves of the cavalry as they charged the rioters, and that didn't help the general mood between the rioters and authority. When people were brought to book before the magistrates, increasingly there was a feeling that these people have a case, but nothing is done in Parliament. It was rather like the chainmakers in the early 1900s when the national press gets involved, gets interested, and leads us to the famous event of Mary MacArthur and the women chainmakers strike, 1908-910. The same thing happens for the nailers, but it's in the 1890s when the national press starts to report why is there this violence, and once it gets into the national press, then the government begins to take some uh, interest and begins to regulate the sweated trades too late to help them. So, uh, Guy Shogren, uh, what was it that actually killed the handmade nail trade in the black country? Well, in 1862, a radical Hale Zoen nailer, during one of the strikes which Trevor's mentioned, wrote, And what these evils are that ruins trade, it's through truck cut and pressed nails being made. So he was in no doubt at all that cut nails and pressed nails were one of the problems that did for the handmade nail trade. But there were other things as well that affected both the handmade nail trade and the cut nail trade and caused it to go into rapid decline after the mid-1870s. Firstly, it was overseas competition. The Belgians, Americans, Germans were producing nails and exporting them to Britain and to Britain's colonial countries like Australia and India. The wire nail started to be developed, and not so much in the the Midlands, but in fact in Warrington and Leeds, so that the focal point of nail making shifted north, away from the Midlands. And if cut nails were cheaper to produce than handmade nails then wire nails were cheaper still. Is that where the wire's drawn out into the shape of a nail? Exactly, yes. The impact was catastrophic, really, in the black country particularly. In the 1890s, a former secretary of the Nailmakers Union described handmade nailing as one of the worst trades in the kingdom. A Bronzegrove nailer said it was one of the disgracefulest trades. And in a book called The White Slaves of England... Spike nail making, that's quite large nails, was surely the cruelest occupation in which women and young girls are employed in this country. So that was, things were going rapidly downhill socially. And over what period are we talking that this happened? Well, although the handmade nail trade had been declining from 1830, it had reached a figure of about 20,000 people employed in 1860. There was a spike with the Franco-Prussian War. Because imports of nails from Europe were cut off, both the handmade nail trade and the cut nail trade thrived for a few years. But by 1875, the effect had withered. By 1901, that number had fallen to 4,000, and that included both handmade nailers and cut nailers. And by 1911, it was down to 3,200. And really, by the beginning of the First World War, it was all over for the nail trade in the West Midlands. Now, should we be saddened, Trevor, by the loss of such industry, or should we consider ourselves the more enlightened that we've left it all behind us? This is a philosophical conundrum, isn't it? We might well feel diminished by the decline of a skilled metal workers' trade, which ordinary folk can do. And any enlightenment we might feel about the past has to be tempered, perhaps, 
by a realistic look at the similar exploitation in unregulated aspects of today's economy. The nailers, of course, had skills to make a living. How does that compare with today? Should we bemoan this loss? Well, perhaps the loss of any skilled craft as such is a loss to that society. Guy, let me um, ask you where these skills can still be seen today. I'm going to stick my neck out in my ignorance and say that the hand-cut nail trade has virtually disappeared. It must all be manufacturers these days. The hand-cut nail trade is alive and well at the um, oh, really? Black Country Living Museum. Well, of course, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that's about it. And also at Acton Scott in Shropshire, the farm where they give demonstrations of handmade nailing, but that's it. The extent of handmade nail making is, is largely demonstrated yeah. these days. Yes, that's right. Nail making's gone on for thousands of years. In the last few years, especially with the advent of the space race, we've developed things like adhesives that are fantastically powerful. What's the future of nails? It seems to me that nails just have become different. You know, you, you have nail guns. I, I just had a loft conversion, and the study walls there were made not with a hammer and nails, but with a nail gun. And there are special nails that have been developed to secure into thermalite blocks. So as building materials develop, so the fixtures and fittings develop as well. And I think the traditional nail, well, you can still get them in ironmongers, and they're still used, obviously. An optimistic note there. They'll, they'll continue for some well, time I, to come. I think so. I think so. Okay. And on that, uh, I think the final word will go to Francis Britt Young when he describes Lorimer, the master, recalling that his father said, machines were all very well, but sound material and honest handicraft must win through in the end. How ultimately wrong that was to prove. And in so many other areas than just nail making as well. Uh, my thanks to Guy Sugarman and Trevor Raybol for their contribution and to our hosts here at the Black Country Living Museum. If you'd like to see nail making as it once was, then you can contact the museum for times of demonstrations. And as always, if you wish to obtain both current and back issues of our History West Midlands magazine, watch the accompanying presentations, subscribe to our audio resources or simply contact us, then you can do it all by going through the History West Midlands website and following the relevant links. Join me next time for more fascinating insights into the Black Country. Until then, enjoy your history and thank you for listening.